Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. The Athletic. The race is on, and amid the flurry of races before the August break, there's plenty going on off track with rumours of cost cap breaches, question marks about the new team's process, and talk of engine equalisation. I'm Ed Straw, and joining me to sift through the latest round of controversy in F1 is Scott Mitchell Malm. Well, Scott, we're still in Budapest, several days after the Grand Prix. Heading off to Belgium later. So a nice city to be in, isn't it? Yeah, Budapest is always a, a cool one. Talked about that a little bit on the sort of race review podcast. This is a, a fun race to come to, and we're we've been staying just on the the, the edge of, of Hero Square. So there's loads of amazing architecture around the place, and it's just a slightly more civilized way of dealing with the uh, the second back to back in the space of you know of a week off in between four races in five, and that means we'll be travelling to, to to Brussels and then heading down Sparway fairly shortly. Um, and it means we arrive at the Belgian Grand Prix, final race before the summer break, a little bit refreshed. How do you feel about heading to Spa before the summer break rather than after it? It's slightly disorientating. I mentioned this on the previous podcast that Hungary not being the one before the break is odd and then Spa not being the first one after is slightly disorientating. But I think it'll feel quite familiar once we're there because there was hope. And in fact, there's a benefit because obviously you're less likely to get rain if it's after the break and from what I've seen from the weather forecast it's going to be brilliantly sunny all this weekend or have I read that wrong? Um, it's going to be uh, risks of thunderstorms throughout and lots of rain I imagine um, lots of disruption lots of concern over uh, visibility and sessions getting pushed back or maybe cancelled suspended entirely and given that we're going there off the back of the fatality in the Formula Regional European race uh, a few weeks ago and there's no sign of any changes being made to the circuit I would imagine there's going to be a heightened sense of kind of discomfort and caution, I would hope, through the entire weekend. I've sort of said this before, I've written this before, it would be ludicrous to go back to Spa and not change anything after a fatality and then risk something else happening um, just a few weeks later with something that's got the scrutiny and profile of, of Formula One. So the fact that we're going there and the forecast does look really bad and I can only stress that we need maximum caution with how this weekend is is run. We have now seen what we we know that this is a track that that has problems with the rain and visibility and speed on the straights and that corner profile of Eau and Radion onto the Kemmel Straight. So that 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 cocktail of factors just means maximum caution. I'd I'd much 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 rather see sessions being cancelled outright and suspended massively, not rushed to get off just because we need to see a show. And of course, as was revealed a few days ago, the FIA Spray Guards project is still some way off yielding tangible results. I won't talk about that on this podcast. In fact, if you subscribe to our other podcasts or listen to our latest episode, The Race F1 Tech Show, that's myself and Gary Anderson, we talk about the Spray Guards and various other topics in detail. If you haven't listened to that podcast, it covers all things tech. Loads of Gary Anderson on that. So uh, yeah, you should be able to find that wherever you get your podcast. But Scott, let's delve into the matter at hand. We'll start off with the rumours of cost cap infringements that are apply to the 2022 season how seriously should listeners take that talk especially given the FIA has issued a pretty strong denial what exactly is going on 
So there have been rumours for for a little while about you know potential breaches, and there's all sorts of speculation. I'm not really sure how much of truth it's it's founded in initially. But the longer the process goes on, and the more you know teams get visited and repeat visits happen as the that auditing fieldwork takes place, you get further into a process, and there's just more chance for suspicion to emerge or different sides to talk to each other. I don't know how much it happens, but I can easily envisage a world in which accounting or HR people within teams are talking to other teams. I can like in the same way that engineers and people that have known each other in different teams talk to each other. It, it does happen. So could come from that, could come from um, just purely within the FIA, not to say that the FIA is leaking information outside, but within the FIA specifically, the more information you get because everybody submitted their reviews by now and you've been analysing them and asking for more information, it's possible that some suspicions or concerns have been raised and that's why you go back and you ask more questions and you want to see more evidence or or uh, you know accounting practices or, or whatever it may be um so i can see why getting to this stage as the field work comes to a conclusion doesn't mean that we're really close to a, to an outcome i can see why we would get to now and there start to be concerns shall we say yeah exactly it's such a complicated process this because the cost cap it's not absolute it, there's loads of exemptions and all the teams are quite complicated as well. So there's non-F1 activities going on. There's obviously been a bit of talk about that and making sure that you're not getting benefit from your sideline projects, whether that's America's Cup or engine projects or road car projects, all sorts of things. And that's not pointed at any one particular team. And I must admit, this was expected last year. And the stakes were high in a different way last year because I always felt the first year of the cost cap you always had to be a little bit give a little bit of leeway I thought the Red Bull punishment was fine in the circumstances provided that that was kind of the line in the sand and they tied it up and if there's other breaches in future they they come down on quite heavily so it's difficult at this stage because there's such a broad range of what a breach can be and how it can happen and what the benefits are that it sounds like there's a high probability there's going to be something but you don't know whether that's going to be absolutely massive or tiny or administrative, minor or material of the two different levels of it. So it's it's a very, very broad spectrum of what could be about to happen. Absolutely. And I think it's fair to say that we wouldn't be surprised if there have been other breaches because it is a complex situation. I don't I'd like to think that no team would do it intentionally, but I can see some some discrepancies and I can see people pushing the limit because it's a rule, isn't it? You and push- teams push up against the rules. You have to go to the maximum. If you think there's a grey area, you push it. So there's that it's not just like legal or not legal. There's a way where you really have to push the rules. It's the team's job to do that. But this is very much in the realms of speculation, what we're discussing here. It's informed speculation and it's, you know, within it's got good reason and logic behind it but we're not accusing anyone of anything and we're not saying anything has happened and that's where the FIA comes in with this claim about it being um, unfounded and basically saying you know no team's even got its certification either way whether you committed a breach or you complied with the financial regulations so you can't say that someone has or hasn't committed a breach and what I would say there's there's two things here one cynically the FIA said in Singapore last year that there was you know unsubstantiated rumor or whatever was the phrase that they used when there were rumours that Red Bull and Aston Martin had committed breaches. And it turned out a couple of weeks later or a few weeks, whenever it finally emerged within the following month, Red Bull had committed a minor breach and Aston Martin had committed a procedural breach. So that unsubstantiated rumour, or however they phrased it, turned out to be true. So, cynically, one might say that just because this is all unfounded doesn't mean it's not true, because it could come 
to pass. But the con the counter to that, which I think is is genuine and, and I think it and I think it should be taken seriously, is that in Singapore last year, we were way closer to the end of the process. And even though it was the FIA's intention to speed things up and get it done sooner this year, it doesn't look like that's going to be the case by an order of like, you know months. It might be a couple of weeks earlier, but I'd be actually not surprised if we end up on a similar timeline because I feel like the FIA, even though they've got 10 people full-time working on it now instead of four, I feel like they're asking more questions, they're seeking more answers... The teams are probably being more cautious. They understand the process a bit better, so they're asking questions. And if we have multiple breaches, then there's going to be more subsequent investigations, more talks with lawyers, advisory boards, whoever it may be, and the process will drag on. So even though you've technically got a more streamlined or efficient process, you've got a bigger workload, so the overall amount of time taken remains roughly the same. And so if that is the case and we're looking at a September resolution... I don't think by the end of July we're far enough in that process to know definitively whether someone has committed a breach or not. And if we remember last year, the process is the FI will release a statement saying X teams have got their certification and there's these teams that there's a problem with. And then you go into the next part of the process, which is basically negotiating what the punishment is. And obviously, there's a bit of misunderstanding about this because you can have what's called an accepted breach agreement, which is when, as the name suggests, you accept there's a breach and you accept the punishment that's meted out. If you don't come to an accepted breach agreement, then it can be a bit more draconian and something will get passed out onto you and it can get quite messy. So even once you get to that certification point, there's then another step beyond that. And that's why it wasn't until late October, obviously, last year that we had the final resolution about a month after after it, had, it had emerged. So it's a complicated process. And I often see fans understandably saying, oh, well, you've got to be absolute on this. It should be like a technical infringement if you're 0.2 millimetres over on a bit of bodywork, that's illegal, etc., etc. And I understand why that's something that people want to see. But this, this is very, very complicated. The financial regulations, if you wade into them, are yeah, you can see how many exclusions there are, how complicated it is. And there's, there's vast amounts of regulatory material around beyond that 80 page or whatever the financial regs document is. I can't remember how long it is. So it is very, very difficult. It is very, very complicated. And there's a lot of things to unravel and there's a vast range of how serious it can be and each submission is between 150 and 200 pages per team so it's not the work at the moment to you know rifle through that and i think the fia has said it it would just it would be so unrealistic to think that just because you get the submissions by date x you can then have the process wrapped up x plus 30 it's going to take more than a month or six weeks to, to do this it's a very long process and as frustrating as it is to have it rumbling on towards the end of the following season. You know, last year it came after Max Verstappen won the 2022 championship. I would not be surprised if we get a final resolution of this when Max is very, very close to winning the 2023 championship. Might come just before, but unfortunately that's just the reality that that, that this is in. The financial regs, as you say, are incredibly complex. The teams are, we know, going to push them to the absolute limit. So those submissions are going to need a lot of scrutiny. And at the moment the FIA is not quite tooled up to you know, blast through things in the space of even two or three months. Exactly, yeah. And then it also comes down to where do the breaches lie? It's an ambiguity found that can justify why something happened and say, well, actually, yes, you did breach, but there was this ambiguity. There was, so there's so many things that can happen. And we should also stress, whatever happens, it's not necessarily going to be the same teams again. Could be, could not be. We don't know. We don't know how many teams. It could be a lot more teams. It could be 10 teams. I don't think it will be. But anything can kind of happen at the moment. But 
I think the important thing is if there's a, if there is something serious, and I mean, I'm not saying a, that has to be a material breach, but if there's a significant serious overspend that has meaning, it does need to be come down on very very hard. Otherwise, I think the cost caps in serious jeopardy. But it's a fine, but it's a fine line to tread because. If they go too absolute, they can break the cost cap. If they go too mild, they can break the cost cap. There's a happy medium to be found there. And it's good the FIA at least is taking this very, very seriously and saying, right, this process will take as long as it takes to do this process properly. And those more severe consequences will go for whoever it is. Like, as you say, we're not, saying, yeah. we're not saying there's going to be a repeat breach, but that mulligan that was thrown a bit last year with that kind of extra degree of leniency went for everyone. So just because it was... Red Bull and maybe to a lesser extent Aston Martin, even though it was a procedural breach, it was still a breach in the first iteration of the regs. The point was, it's not everybody gets one. It's in the first year, we treated it this way, and now it's the same for everybody. I would imagine if there is a repeat breach, that will still reflect poorly on uh, either of the teams, That should, should it come to that. But if, for example, another team that isn't Red Bull or Aston Martin has committed a breach and gets a more severe punishment than last year, people shouldn't be looking at it and saying, oh, well, this is worse than Ripple got last year, but this is the first time that they've done this breach. doesn't matter. It's the second time anyone's done a breach, and that that's why it will be more severe. Yeah, that was expressly pointed out last year as the emergency services pass our window. You may be able to hear that in the background, some uh, Budapest road background noise that's what we like to hear on their way to grab anyone who has committed a cost cap breach exactly yeah that's the cost cap police they're very very <laughs> very very visible on the streets of of budapest but yeah it, it is very very important that people get that last year's punishment in itself was not a precedent they made that very very clear so it's not about comparing the the penalties it's going to be about what the breach is and coming up with a penalty that discourages it because as i always say with regulation it doesn't matter whether it's financial sporting or technical you cannot have a situation where you can decide to make a breach because you know the penalty that you will get will give you a net gain it's a bit like you don't get a five second penalty for something that's worth 10 seconds or you buy the penalty so that that's the thing that you need to do you buy the advantage rather you accept the the, the penalties part of that cost equation so a, a tricky line there but it is going to be a while before we see something tangible on this and while it's probably fair to assume there's a good chance something may crop up we at the moment don't know exactly it's all in the realm of paddock rumor at the moment Hi, producer Johnny here, interrupting the show momentarily to tell you about Roan, a clothes brand we think you'd like. I don't know about you, but finding clothes you like can be tough. Sizes can vary from brand to brand, and fabrics can be poor quality or uncomfortable. We all know a good outfit can impact your confidence and help you feel your best, and that's where Roan comes in. Their range of stylish, functional, business casual menswear helps you look good without having to think about it. Is versatile, high quality and durable, and works in a range of social and professional settings. Roan's commuter collection includes products for every occasion, including the world's most comfortable pants, dress shirts, quarter zips, polos and blazers. It also features, and get this, wrinkle release technology and gold fusion anti-odor technology for more wears between washes, so you'll be fresh and clean all day long. Roan were kind enough to send me a shirt and some pants from the Commuter Collection and I can tell they're going to be part of my wardrobe for a long time to come. The Commuter Collection could get you through any workday and straight into whatever comes next. Head to roan.com forward slash race and use promo code race to save 20% off your entire order. That's 20% off your entire order when you head to roan.com forward slash race and use code race. 
it's time to find your corner office comfort. Well, Scott, our next topic is the new teams. The deadline for applications to join the F1 grid passed a while ago. In fact, the first deadline passed and then another deadline passed. These are very soft deadlines, aren't they? (laughs) It's all quiet on that front. So what is the holdup? Well, the FIA still hasn't quite finished its part of the 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 process which is obviously a very thorough analysis of technical sporting financial requirements that the team have to team has to to come into f1 and compete at a at a relevant level um there's other elements in it diversity inclusivity sustainability um so they're still they're in the final phases having vetted the the process of basically making their recommendations i think to f1 because i it's been framed a different, a couple of different ways uh, at times, but I think broadly speaking, the FAA needs to conclude its side and, you know, say to F1, we're recommending these teams um, for approval. We're happy with them joining the grid. We're willing, we're willing, and we're going to grant them entries. And then F1 has to say whether or not it'll enter Concord negotiations with those teams and, and come to a commercial agreement. And F1 has made it pretty clear, I think, for several months that it's probably not going to do that. Um, I don't think it sees a a worthwhile argument at the moment for for expanding the grid and diluting everybody's revenues to to, to share it amongst amongst a, a sorry share it with a, an eleventh entry. So we haven't reached that impasse. It's it's not that the FIA has decided this and now F one has said no and there's you know a problem there and then negotiating how to handle it. I think that's the next step. Where we are at the moment is that the FIA wants to conclude its side of things, which might take a, a, a couple more weeks. I, I don't imagine we're too far away from it being done, but it's definitely the interesting bit is how they play the next phase because we're hearing rumours that both the Andretti Cadillac side of things and the high-tech side of things are the most convincing of the applicants and the FIA might be leaning towards green-lighting them and being willing to grant an 11th and 12th entry for, the, for these two entities. But as I said, F1 isn't probably going to accept that from a commercial point of view and therefore we'll, we'll, we'll block it from happening. And how that gets resolved, how that's played out, does the FIA announce that it's greenlighting two teams independently and then FIA, uh, F1 has to say no? Do they collaborate on it? Which, as we know, there's a needle between F1 and the FIA ever since the Mohammed Ben Salem presidency started. That's The resolution of that is what's fascinating to me because there's this strange worst-case scenario where there's a complete breakdown in the communication and collaboration on this and you have a situation where two teams are ostensibly, to all intents and purposes, granted entries to F1, but they are going to get denied by F1 itself and they won't have a commercial agreement and there'll be this weird limbo where we have two new teams but we all know that there aren't really going to be new teams and it has to be dissolved, which is... Like I say, a strange worst-case scenario. Which is not a good worst-case scenario to get into because it looked very bad for Formula One. I think, fundamentally, I've always said there should be a... I think there should actually be a desire to get a couple more teams into Formula One. However, I think that desire to have a couple of new teams should be paired with a very high bar for entry. I've said that before. Certainly when Cadillac was announced, that gave Andretti a big boost, but it's going to be down to the scrutiny of their finances, etc. But there is a little bit of a contradiction in this, because obviously, yes, you have FIA's regulatory and F1 is commercial. But at the same time, there's a commercial aspect in the FIA in the FIA application process. So the FIA does have to judge the commercial 
side as well and the financial ability of the team etc etc so it's it's very complicated and could be quite a big flashpoint but one thing I would say is I think I I completely understand why a lot of fans are saying they should let in teams the more the merrier I think that's a good principle but I also think the principle of having a good rigorous process is a very very sound one as well because it's all about the financial stability of everything this is down to how you, if you want a Concord agreement that gives an equitable split of the, of the funds to teams, it's all about ensuring a, a more fair and stable Formula One. So you do dilute that if you let people in and what you don't need, and I'm not saying any of these new teams are that, but you don't need like 1989 style people just sort of turning up because they fancy a piece of the action. I agree, they do need to contribute. It's where that contribution bar should be and whether F1 and the teams want to set that bar impossibly high or at the right level. Or even the last time that we had multiple teams coming in because obviously the way Haas was done, it seemed quite sensible from the start. Doubts over over whether whether it would really be practical, competitive, or you know within the spirit of, of F1, but but functional and, and and worked. But you go back to when four new teams were meant to join the grid before then, you don't want a repeat of HRT and God help us USF1, where one of those teams never actually materialised and the other one went through what certainly at least one ownership change before it even made it to the grid in HRT. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, HRT fundamentally changed, and that was always a, a somewhat peripatetic team that that never really got a foothold. At least uh, the, what was Virgin and what was Lotus Racing did actually, they may have been short-lived, but they did do it properly, shall we say, rather than as a as a kind of wandering band of, of people as HRT was. <laughs> exactly. So what I like about this, in one sense, is what Mohammed Ben Salayem has done it by instigating the formal process and because there was a lot of noise going around Andretti were obviously trying for a very long time to get into Formula 1 they looked at buying teams and then they were making noises about entering a team and there were always whispers that the likes of high tech were building up a, a situation um, for themselves where they then had the, the, the structure and the means to, to, to enter Formula 1 and there were always parties sort of sniffing around the edges what the FIA has done by starting this process is allowed all of that to stop being noise in the background and actually be scrutinised properly and then see whether any of these teams really do merit serious consideration. It's, I see it more as a really good, sensible first stage of the process. But the flip side of starting the process is that means you do have to let it run to its conclusion. And I go back to that worst-case scenario I was talking about before and just because there is clearly an inevitable conflict coming, assuming the FAA does find, with no manipulation of the process, i.e. throwing the process to, to avoid any conflict, if it finds one or two teams or four teams that are good enough to join the grid, it has to recommend them and it has to then have a, a serious conversation about whether they should be allowed to, to join the grid. Otherwise, what's the point of having that process in the first place? But by starting that... By starting that back in February or whenever it was that it was it was it was formally it formally commenced, you you can't back out of that now. Like I say, you you can't throw the you can't throw the process to avoid the slightly messy and awkward conclusion that might be a few weeks away. So now we we're in a situation where the right thing to do is to potentially have conflict between the FIA and F1. It's a perfectly legitimate outcome from the process as a whole for us to get to that strange worst-case scenario where you have two teams that ostensibly are allowed to enter Formula 1 but aren't allowed to enter because they can't enter Concord, Concord negotiations. And I re- all I hope is that the FAA and F1 are very collaborative and sensible about how they handle this because whether it's for an hour, 24 hours, a week, a month, it's going to look bad 
if there is a schism in how this is being handled and if the fans are in any way led to believe that there are one or two teams joining the grid, but we all know that they're not really and it has to be unpicked from there. That's just, a, as we said before, just a messy and undesirable solution and situation. Exactly, yeah, it needs to be done right. And as I said, there is, there's a legitimate argument potentially to reject all of the applicants. It may be perfectly reasonable, but if it gets caught up in all that mess and everything, it's just going to look stupid and people on the outside are rightfully going to say, hang on a minute, this is just anti-competition. One thing I would add is that whether it's the FAA side or F1 side, is I'd be surprised if there isn't at least a consideration or preparation for potential litigation from either of the parties involved, especially if they get approval from the FAA side or they're, you know, they're, they're shown to have passed the, the technical, financial and um, sporting checks. And they, if, if they look on paper like a legitimate F1 entry, they're going to say, well, hang on a second, it's, yeah, as you say, like it's anti-sporting to, to block us because you've, You've got one entity saying that we are a, a worthwhile addition to the grid. So how can you sit there and say that you're not going to accept us just so that you can get a bit more money out of being in Formula One? You're, you know, you're, you're being anti-competition. You're blocking us from coming in. I'm not saying that that's going to be a successful position. And I would, like I say, I would imagine if they have considered the pos- prospects of litigation, I'm sure F1 or even the FAA would have a strong and robust defence of that. But it is something to consider because if you're, for example, Michael Andretti or you're the representatives of high tech, you're not going to be happy to have spent a lot of money at this stage and a lot of work, you know, with whatever it is, whether it's, you know, enhancing factory setups or even doing initial simulations and, 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 and work on um, a 25 or well, 26 car because it'll all be really for 2026, although Andretti are aiming for 25, which complicates it. Um, if you've been hiring people, which we know that certain entities have, you've, you've invested a lot already a lot of time effort and money into this and you're going to want a damn good reason why you're not allowed and they're not going to sit there and take it at face value that it's not in the best financial interests or commercial interests of the sport and all the stakeholders to let them in so i suspect at first they will at least push back or even properly fight it and the other thing we should bear in mind is it's not just the share of the uh, of the prize money that will be diluted. There's also the question of team value, isn't there? Forbes did a piece the other day estimating the value of the F1 teams ranging from £3.9 billion for Ferrari. I don't think uh, anybody's going to be buying Scuderia Ferrari, but mm. that was up top with Mercedes at £3.8 billion and then down to Williams at the bottom, £725 million. This is all dollars. Even AlphaTauri, £1.125 billion. So there's the second element that you could say teams are motivated to keep that scarcity in that it's a 10 franchise thing rather than a 12 franchise thing and in fact they have on a number of occasions said if you want to get into f1 don't be an extra team why don't you buy one of the existing ones so that's the other dimension as well because that's uh, so easy to do yeah the financial self-interest and uh, yeah you could there's not many teams you could argue are, are up for sale in any way shape or form but again that suits them because it just protects the value of your asset and that asset value has gone up hugely We'll get back to the pod in a moment, but first, a word about our partner, Grammarly. No matter what kind of work you do, how you communicate is key. All those emails, reports and presentations are equally important to the collaboration needed to get things done. And Grammarly can help. Grammarly is your AI writing partner to help you communicate more effectively and efficiently so you can make a bigger impact at work. I know from experience that Grammarly can help you save time on any writing task and ensure you feel confident about what you've produced. In fact, 96% of Grammarly's users report that Grammarly helps them craft more impactful writing, and their tone suggestions can help you navigate even the most difficult work conversations. 
make a bigger impact at work with Grammarly. Sign up and download for free at grammarly.com forward slash podcast. That's G-R-A-M-M-A-R-L-Y dot com slash podcast. Easier said done. Well, Scott, there's an F1 Commission meeting coming up on Friday. There's plenty on the agenda there. One of the topics is the potential for engine equalisation. So who's pushing for that? How likely do you think that is to happen? Um, Renault, or Alpine, I suppose as we should call them, um, is the entity that's pushing for it, um, which is ironic because I believe that when the engine freeze was originally being discussed ahead of its introduction, and this was obviously around the time of Honda leaving and Ripple needing a, an alternative powertrain solution, and this being quite a good one because Honda would be able to um, basically develop the engine for one more season and then hand it over to Red Bull for, for several seasons. Reb, uh, Renault was actually one of the teams that was initially pushing back against it. They didn't like... Um, they, they were happy with the freeze, I think, in principle, but didn't like the idea of it being brought forward because they had a plan in place that meant, you know, developing this by this date and this by this date and bringing, bringing in a freeze at the start of 2022 would clash with their original development plan. But eventually they relented and they made a big effort to upgrade their engine entirely as intended at the start of 2022 and they made all kinds of noises through 22 about how they'd made the progress that they wanted and that's why the unreliability in 2022 was acceptable or you know something that they were willing to to roll with through the season and accept that it would be there would be complications or or compromises through the year and they'd make the reliability changes as they went because you're allowed to make reliability changes even if you aren't allowed to make performance changes so having spent 2022 hearing that and giving them the benefit of the doubt and thinking that they've done a good job, all of a sudden it sounds like Alpine's engine is actually quite a bit down, 20 to 30 brake horsepower of its rivals. So what was all that no- first of all, what was all that noise about last year when they said that they had made a step? And how bad a job did they do with that engine if they didn't make the step that they needed to and still had reliability issues? That's the kind of cynical way of looking at it. But there is a slightly more middle ground way, which is a bit of a hint from Alpine that with so-called reliability-only changes, other power unit manufacturers may have been able to make a bit of a step that they haven't been able to. And there were other things you were allowed to do around software and stuff like this that were still open that you could, you know, tempt a little bit more performance out of your power unit. It just sounds like Alpine's been caught out a little bit, slightly on the back foot. The other three are a, seem to be, you know, decent parity-ish between them. So it's all about whether you allow Alpine a chance to be equalised and, crucially, how do you achieve that? Yeah, exactly. And also... Sometimes reliability changes, if you're running containing those problems, and then you change something, you do unlock some performance. There's all sorts of things. You can get tangential performance benefits. It's interesting, really, because obviously the engine freeze, well, an engine freeze in Formula 1 first came in some years ago. Obviously, the final six or so, five years of the, the V8 era were covered by that. And again, the regs then allowed you to make changes for reasons of cost, reliability, or safety only. However, There was an interesting thing in the regulations, and obviously Max Mosley, this was his era, he was a lawyer, and the phraseology was something of the ilk of, in normal circumstances, you can only make changes for this reason. So in order to make performance changes, which there were some performance-based changes made in that era, you only had to establish that this is not normal circumstances. And and never the lawyer, Mosley could say, well, actually, uh, it's not normal circumstances because there's a disadvantage, therefore this is abnormal circumstances, therefore you can do it. So there's often ways to to find sneaky uh, sneaky ways to do this. But this is a little bit more of an open way of, of doing it. Yeah, and actually on on that with the um, the engine freeze before, um, I remember actually um, 
an, an anecdote that, that, that Mark Gallagher, um, who, who people might know from, from, from F1, before working in Formula One and, and, and now working uh, uh, around F1 as obviously a, a, an expert mainly on you know, business matters and, and stuff like that. But he was telling a story about um, Charlie Whiting, um, which was that um, how, how he'd learned about how teams basically cheat and, and, and push, the, push the boundaries. And he, um, when, when Mark was at, at Cosworth, he called Charlie about upgrading a, a component despite an en- the engine freeze being in place. And Charlie's response paraphrasing obviously was break some on the dyno send picks and claim a reliability issue the others do that and think i don't realize yeah exactly exactly and uh, it's interesting actually because in the past i have um when doing engine interviews you'll often um they'll often produce some photos they see sort of big folders with loads and loads of pictures of chip bits and pieces and uh and uh damaged cars but damaged parts and etc etc but it the one thing we should say is whenever there's a reliability change, other teams do have to be notified as well. And since the engine homologation came in last year, every single one of those power unit manufacturers has had reliability changes approved, multiple, I think, for in, in all cases of them. So things are going on. So, yeah, interesting to see how that works out. I mean, ultimately, if we're talking just over 30 horsepower at the top end of the Alpine deficit, the rule of thumb Gary Anderson always uses is 10 horsepower is about a tenth of a second around a notional lap. So it's three tenths plus or minus for for track sensitivity so it's not a massive massive thing feels a bit convenient that that's about what they seem to be lacking to the sharp end of the midfield though and i say midfield in terms of you know that whole lead group basically behind red bull because there's sort of five teams in that mix you've got ferrari mercedes aston martin um, mclaren and alpine kind of all really in that space to a greater lesser extent and if you gave them two or three attempts in engine performance all of a sudden they'd be at the front of it, it I don't know. I, obviously, I, I'm on the outside. They might well have a legitimate deficit that is perfectly reasonable to help them catch up, but it feels like that's a convenient number given how much it would dr- drastically change how that team's performing. Also, engine performance is not a one-dimensional thing. It's not just how much power you've got. There's a lot more factors as well to take into account. So interesting to see how that goes. What else is on the agenda for the F1 Commission? Well, we talked about the new teams, and I think the, um, the, the, the F1 teams will get a, an update on that process but i suspect that that update on that process is going to be something along the lines of there's not really any news um it might well be that there'll be a discussion over sort of who the faa likes or doesn't like but i don't know if they're really going to um actually uh let the teams know about um uh, about exactly where they are with it and they can't really reveal confidential information so i suspect that'll be um, that'll be fairly limited. But one of your favourite topics is on the agenda, isn't it, Ed? Because it's blanketless tyres. Yeah, I'm always very interested in goings on in the world of tyres. Obviously, this is the ban on tyre warmers for next year. That was originally in the rules for 2024. Earlier this year, they said, actually, the rules are going to stay the same, but they put in this mechanism for by the 31st of July, they can have a vote to bring the ban on not just tyre blankets, but all forms of tyre warming. They can vote that back in and they need five teams to be in favour of that. I think F1 and FIA, who are also part of that voting process, are in favour of it. So they need five teams in order to get that through. Uh, I don't know whether they're going to get five teams. My sneaking suspicion is they probably won't, but it, it could. it's one of those things that could go either way. I think there's some teams who are definitely voting against it. I don't think Mercedes are keen at all, but... Yeah, balance of probability, I think it won't go through. But Pirelli obviously has been doing this development programme with these blanketless tyres. They're their most recent test of it in uh, Silverstone after the British Grand Prix. They did one after the Spanish Grand Prix as well. And in fact, there's one in the Bel- after the Belgian Grand Prix at Spa. Soffel van Dorn's going to drive Aston Martin in that one, for example. And that will be the blanketless tyre programme anyway, because they've booked in tests ongoing anyway, because it's still a, a live thing. And 
by all accounts, actually, the, the product they've got is fine. It's not going to take 20 laps to warm up the tyre or anything. They seem to be getting the tyres energised around Barcelona and Silverstone in good time. There were big concerns because they were struggling with the early tests uh, in the year. But they ran at Hareth in like eight degrees or something. So, yeah, that is going to be difficult for tyre warm-up. So, yeah, I think the product is pretty good. Pirelli have done a big dossier, so it's going to be down to whether the teams, they'll discuss it at F1 Commission, then vote on it, whether they want to go for it. But I think we also have to remember that teams are always motivated by what works for them. So whether it's technically a viable product, which Pirelli says it is, is only part of the equation. Yeah, I'm interested to... I'd be interested to see a trial of it. I think maybe um, in, in the similar style of the sprint format and the alternative tyre allocation that we saw in what, when we were here in Hungary, I'd like to, I'd be perfectly happy to pick, you know, let's say a sample of six or seven races over the course of the year and you pick a few where you've got some on different, you know, circuit surfaces and, you know, tracks that, that lend themselves to quick tyre warm-up uh, ones where you're probably going to get different um, conditions, maybe go to an absolute extreme and, and do it as do a trial of it at, at, at Las Vegas. I've talked about this before that I, I don't think that's going to be nightmarish. Um, I, it's meant to be really really cold when when we go there, especially when you're racing racing at night. So if you picked a few of these and just trialed it in reality, maybe that would help because it would just it's that element that we've been talking about before when we've talked about what we like so much about the sprint is that F1's actually willing finally to test these 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 things in reality rather than just leave everything down to hypothetical arguments for or against so maybe that would be a middle ground if this gets pushed back on and, and people aren't convinced let's actually see it in action on a smaller scale and then decide whether we whether it is feasible to introduce it on a larger scale yeah it's possible although because it's such a fundamentally different tire product i suspect teams would be very wary of doing that but you never know i think you've got this constant push or pull because teams will just be conservative they don't like change generally unless they think change can advantage them and normally you'd say actually in a situation like this it would be in the interest of the top teams to not have change and those lower down might think we want change but in this particular situation if you're one of the teams towards the back you've got a bit less downforce you're not working the tires so hard so you might be thinking actually banning tire warmers might be harder for us because we can't energize the tires in the same way so all of these things will factor into it and we should also note actually this is an f1 and fia initiative they asked pirelli to investigate this often pirelli gets gets stick for what it's trying to do but it's been asked to create this product i think they quite like to use it because they put a lot of work into it but they weren't evangelizing about the need to have tire warmers banned. It's, it's again, a sustainability initiative. It's to get rid of the tire blankets, etc. And obviously, tire blankets are used a little bit less now than they were previously. So, yeah, we'll see how that vote goes. If I had to put some money on it now, it would be that it won't go through, but I certainly wouldn't bet the house on it because I think it, it's, it's one that's still a very live issue. And, yeah, let's see what comes of that. Well, thanks very much, Scott. Head to the race.com. Loads to read there about the Belgian Grand Prix weekend. We'll have news from the F1 Commission that we've been talking about as well, and also anything happening in the world of F1 politics. I'm sure there'll be plenty of chat in the Spa paddock. Head to our YouTube channel as well. Loads of videos to watch there. Our other podcasts, including Bring Back V10s, the Race F1 Tech Show that I mentioned earlier with our Spray Guards episode that's out now, our IndyCar podcast, MotoGP. Lots and lots and lots to listen to. Well, we're going to now head to the airport, jump on our flight to Spa, and we'll be back soon with everything you need to know from the Belgian Grand Prix. The Athletic.